0: as we move towards our anniversary celebration and the kicking off of this capital campaign, I'm going to take our sermons here on Sunday morning in a little different direction. I'm going to go into the Old Testament and look at the building of the tabernacle and the temple and look at the roots of what it means to be a church and what it means to be God's people through the Old Testament. So if you want to pick up your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be bouncing around quite a lot today, but we're launching from there. Exodus chapter 6, Moses has received God's word from the burning bush. He has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh basically said, get out of here, you little kid. You're not doing anything to me. You have no power here. In fact, he punishes the Israelites by making them build more bricks and build without straw. And so Moses and God are having some words after this about what's going to happen next. Because I think Moses sort of thought, well, I'll go in there and I'll do the stick thing and then Pharaoh will let him go. And it's not as simple as Moses seems to think it would have been. And so here we go. Exodus 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 2 through 9. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. (laughs) Moses spoke thus to Israel. But they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and harsh labor. Here ends the reading of God's word. The people have a problem. They have two conflicting realities that they're trying to understand and put together. They have broken spirits from this harsh slavery. On the one hand, they are really experiencing the slavery, the beatings, the losing of their lives to the Pharaoh's work, the jealousy of the Pharaoh, the killing of their firstborn children. This harsh, harsh reality that they have been experienced for so long, they don't even remember a God who was close to them. Yes, they know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They maybe say them around the campfire, but they, they are fairy tales now. How could that reality exist? And yet Moses comes in and tries to bring a different reality. They have this reality they're experiencing, but Moses wants to say, no, have hope, have faith. The harshness of the world they're experiencing is contrasted with the hope of a world they are not yet experiencing, but they're trying to believe it is real. They have these broken spirits And yet they are trying to have a faith in God who will be with them and is with them anyway. We all live in these two stories, don't we? We all have bad days. We all have pain and suffering. We all have challenges we go through where we, like the psalmist and so many other Bible characters, can say, God, where are you? What are you doing here? And at the same time, we try to believe, we try to hope, we try to have a faith that there is something bigger, something better going on. Now imagine the extremes. We we can all feel this tension, right? Imagine being Israel and coming out of slavery, being in slavery and trying to feel that hope. Imagine having lost your firstborn sons because Pharaoh didn't want your people to grow too big. And so God and Moses are both trying to help the Israelites deal with these two realities, this harsh world they are experiencing, and this stark hope that doesn't seem to line up with the other. So the question is, how does God and how does Moses help people who are experiencing this pain and suffering live into this world of hope and faith? How do we start to live in both worlds? Because I got news for you. No matter what those TV preachers tell you, God is not just going to give you everything you ever wanted and everything you ever dreamed of and everything that that you think is going to make you happy. I can't find a single biblical character that gets all that. And the ones that do get wealth and you think would be happy are some of the most miserable ones in the whole book. No, how do we live in both of these worlds clinging to this hope while we are experiencing that that hope is not fully realized yet? Well, I think God gives two ways to do this. And we see Moses starting to work on this with the people. The first one is stories. God immediately refers back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and says, remember, remember the stories you heard as a kid? Remember those stories where I was with your people, where I called you out? Moses is constantly telling the story. In fact, we call the first five books of the Bible the books of Moses. Now, scholars will tell you that these books were probably edited and worked on for a long period of time. But what we get a sense from the text and from the tradition of those being called the books of Moses is that Moses really cared about capturing these stories Helping Israel to rediscover their past, that they got lost. And I think creating new stories, right? The plague, the exodus, the the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock. It's as if God says, I'm not just going to give you, I'm not just going to remind you about your old stories. Come on, we're going to create some new stories. Stories that are going to shape the faith of your children and your grandchildren When God talks to the people of Israel all the time in the Old Testament, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He does it before the Ten Commandments. He does it all the time. I'm the Lord your God. Remember, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, God keeps reminding them of that story over and over and over again. And so Moses is starting to work on getting the people to connect with the story of their past and creating new stories for their future. This is part of how we get past broken spirits and into a life of hope. The other thing that God does, very quickly, after they get out into the wilderness, is He starts to create the cult, the religion. Now, when we say the word cult, we, we typically only use that word in a negative sense, but it's not primarily defined that way. It's really defined as formal religious veneration, or a system of religious beliefs or rituals. Okay, we use it only as a term for like freaky faith and religious, uh, where you know, everybody gets together, follows somebody, and then we all drink the green fluid at the end. That is not traditionally the word cult. That's a more modern sense of the word cult. We, don't, we forget this. It, Israel is not, at this point in the story, a faith system. It's not a religious system. It's not even a nation. What is it? A family. It's a family. It doesn't have all those rituals. It doesn't have certain ways of doing things. It doesn't have all these certain prayers. It has some stories about their ancestors and how God was going to bless their family. And then they have a big family now. There's no cult. There's no religious system behind it. And so what God starts to do is starts to bring Israel out of Egypt. And it, it, the one I've heard it said that it took 40 days to get... Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. That God pulls them out in the wilderness, and He's got to take a long time to try to get them to say, No, 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 you don't live by that world anymore. You live in this world. You live in the world of my faith and my hope. And so God calls them out, finally gets them out in the wilderness, and immediately they get the Ten Commandments. And God starts to build the cult, He starts to build the religious system. And Moses does an an extreme amount of work following God to get this thing right when they are in the wilderness. So, here's the big thing that happens. In Exodus chapter 25, if you still got your Bibles open, Exodus 25, God is calling for the people to build a tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, ye shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Goat's hair, tan ra- tam- ram's skin, goat's skin, acacia wood, oil for lamb, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, incense on stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and of its furniture, you shall make it. First of all, big question. Where did the Israelites get all this stuff? They were slaves. Do you remember that? They were slaves, they were probably allowed to have some things, small homes, um, but, but still they're slaves, they don't have a lot. But if, if you remember back in your story, before they leave, many of the Egyptians give them stuff, give them clothes, give them gold, give them a lot of things right before they leave as a blessing to Israel. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but by the time they get to about plague five, I think the rest of Egypt is like, just let them go. And they end up blessing them with all this stuff. But they probably don't have a lot of stuff. So for, for Moses to say, okay, let's have a collection, it's going to be pretty demanding, right? They don't have a lot of stuff. And, and before, they didn't have barely any stuff. They haven't had their stuff very long. But he says, no, no, no. We've got to collect because we need a place of God's dwelling among us. We need God among us. And so the people give. The text says, "As their hearts are moved, they give," and the building of the tabernacle commences. The tabernacle was a big tent. Want to click one. The tabernacle was is a word meaning tent or dwelling place. It was. Uh, it'll come up. Uh, it was a big tent structure. Okay? You've probably seen pictures of it in your Bible. Uh, there's a little. There's a picture of it right there. Uh, Has sort of a tent around it and was used to travel with Israel. What Israel would do is they would go and they would camp at a certain place and then kind of settle there and then they would pack up and move a little further down the trail and set up. They weren't constantly on the move. It was sort of camping, camping, camping. And so this became the place of worship. It was all designed using the measurement of a cubit. Does anybody know what a cubit is? Yeah, Doug's got it in the back. It goes from your elbow to your fingertips. Okay, so hold up your arm like this. And now watch this. Measure your cubit against somebody like right next to you. What's fascinating is, even if you have a major height difference between people, it's much less of a cubit difference. Okay, generally we're within a couple inches of each other, uh, even if there's a major height difference. Now, there's obviously some difference, but percentage of height to cubit difference is not the same. Okay? People's cubits are generally closer than their heights are, percentage-wise. So they would measure with cubits, because you could generally get a couple different people measuring that had about the same cubit, and that way you could get things generally the same. So you would make a big tent, they had a courtyard with a couple of different things in it, and then what was called the tent of meeting, which had a couple of rooms in it. Now, this is interesting to us, because the tabernacle was the basis for temples, and the temple is the basis for our church. So I don't actually need to teach you that much about the tabernacle on the picture. I can teach you a lot about the tabernacle just in terms of our sanctuary right now. Okay? For instance, the wall that's like half in the back, everybody see the wall back there? It's ridiculous. Why is there half a wall back there? Just to keep our codes back there? No, part of it was that there were different courtyards in the temple and there was a tent in the tabernacle. And so that would be kind of an entry point. And so even in this day, churches have, a lot of churches have, some kind of a section in the back there where uh, people would come in a lot of churches, also, if you go to a Catholic church, for instance, there's often water back there, a little baptismal font, because to be inside of the courtyard meant that you you were a Jew, and so you had to be cleansed to be a Jew. Same thing in churches; you weren't often allowed in churches if you weren't a member, if you weren't clean, and so you had a reminder in the back that you came in through your baptism was the later language. Okay, so that's that. There would be the major courtyard, and in the courtyard there were two different places. You can see the square thing up there. There would have been the the the, the altar, which is where all the sacrifices went, and it would be a, a pretty big altar. Except they had to move it, so it couldn't have been too big. The temple had a much larger one, um, but so that's where burnt offerings would take place. You can you can see poles next to it in the picture. If you can see a lot of your study Bibles, I have this too. So that you could slide it into place and pick it up and carry it. Okay. Also, down there, down in the main courtyard, used to be a, uh, a basin for washing, and that was so that the priests, if they went into the holy place, uh, the tent of meeting, there, could wash themselves and be ceremonially clean to go in there. So a lot of times, there'd be a basin outside of the tent. You can see the little thing up there on the picture. Now, the, the tent of meeting was the special area where uh, only normally priests or leaders could go in. Moses would go in, but later it was only the priests. Uh, in the temple, it got even more constricted. Um, but so there would be these two areas, and they were sectioned off by these great big curtains. Very big, heavy curtains. Okay, and that explains why there's this step here. Have you ever, I've explained this before, but have you ever wondered why there's a step here? It's ridiculous. Why not just have one big stage? Well, it's because in the original temple design, there was a holy area, and then there was the holy of holies. And so most people couldn't go in there, let alone into the holy of holies. This is, by the way, why I normally go get the offering plates and put them over there. Okay? Because most people couldn't go into the holy area, but the priest could. And so the priest would sometimes need to take offerings into the holy area. So that's why I go get the plates, and then I put them back over here, and I go get them and give them to the elders. It's really kind of silly, like the elder could just go there, or whoever's taking the offering could go there, and put it down themselves, but it's a holdover from this design. Now in the temple area, there was the holy and the holy of holies. The holy area and the holy of holies. In In the holy area, there were several different pieces of furniture. Um, I've represented them here. One was the candles. Uh, the candles would have been in the, in the holy area, not the holy of holies. so I moved them today. Okay, There would have been a candelabra. Uh, it's normally represented as a pretty big structure. The lights of which were always to keep going to remind the people that God was always there. And there were in the... There was in the holy area, represented in this level of the stage here, two tables... There was a table that had bread on it. There were 12 loaves of bread that every week were changed for fresh loaves to represent the 12 tribes of Israel being present with God. And there was also a table that was for incense burning. Okay, There, there was a, um, an altar there for burning incense. Now those would have been separate and over time what the church did was made them into one table. So we have a communion table often we put our offerings on that table too. Many of you have probably been in churches where there's just one table. When we designed our church 50 years ago, somebody put two tables. And uh, it's kind of neat because it takes us back to where the tabernacle and the temple used to be, where there were two tables. So there would have been, as I sort of represented here, the communion, the bread table, that would have had the 12 loaves. And then there would have been an incense burning uh, altar that was like a table, so these things would have to move with Israel whenever they would uh, they would be traveling. In the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, or sometimes called the Ark of Testimony. Um, it was a wooden structure, but covered in gold. It wasn't all made of gold. It was wooden, and I gotta say, in doing my research, found out I didn't quite make this right. It, it, it's about this size. Uh, The dimensions of the actual arc were only about maybe six inches in every dimension off. Uh, So it was just slightly, you can just imagine it slightly larger, except it would have had legs, and probably the poles were on the legs, so that when you carried it, you would carry it even higher. So the poles were likely on rings on the legs, and it would have had legs, but this is pretty close to the right size of the arc. Um, Again, only a couple inches in dimensions uh, every direction. Cherubim uh, marked the top of the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of Testimony. And those are angels that are, we we don't know that much about angels. They're kind of mentioned here and there in Scripture, but it's a little hard to get specifics. Cherubim are used uh, in the book of Genesis to guard the uh, the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are kicked out. And so they're generally considered kind of like in, in, in ancient uh, literature and in ancient art, uh, guard angels. They sort of represent borders, they represent uh, sort of beside, beside God, beside the gates to, to heaven, that kind of thing. So Cherubim marked the top of this. We don't know how ornate this was. Um, we don't know if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones finds this. Uh, it's a very ornate uh, ornate sort of art. I, it was great. I got to watch Indiana Jones last night for sermon prep. Um, but in all likelihood, it was probably more simple. It was probably more simple, and some of, the, some of the models and some of the pictures you can find online represent that a little more. Really, we don't know. We know that the two angels that sat on top were made of solid pieces of gold, that their wings were extended, and that their heads were bowed in reverence. So we're trying to simply represent that for our ark today. We know that there was some kind of a lid called the mercy seat. And at the mercy seat, um, was it was either, either understood to be the throne of God or the footstool to the throne of God. But wherever Israel went, they were guided by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And whenever the tabernacle was completely built... Where you know, they would move locations, Tabernacle always, the, the Ark of the Covenant always led the people, always ahead of the entire nation, nation always followed this. And they would put it in place, they would build the, uh, the whole tabernacle, get everything set up and into place, and when it was all ready, the cloud would come and rest in the Holy of Holies. And so Moses, once this was all done, could go into there to speak with the Lord, And in fact, he would come out, and the text tells us that his face would be so shiny, he would freak people out. So he had to wear some kind of veil, which I don't think would freak people out any less. I don't quite get it. But at least they couldn't see the glory of God so strongly as somebody who had been in God's presence. And so the idea was that God sort of settled here when he was in place, when they were settled. Now imagine the symbolism of this. Imagine what this does to your mind as an Israelite. You're out of slavery, but what do you understand? You understand that God is in your midst. That God took a lot of care to give Moses very specific instructions about how high everything was going to be, how it was supposed to look, how it was supposed to work out. You can read chapter after chapter of Exodus on how long everything was supposed to be. It's thrilling reading. But why does God do so much? Why does God care so much? Because God wants this symbol for Israel. To say, I am in your midst. I am with you. What God is ultimately doing is accommodating himself to Israel. He's saying, I think you need to know that I'm with you, so I'm going to be right here in your midst. You're going to build this for me, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to be right here for this pilgrim people. Traveling through the wilderness, struggling though they may be to, to wrestle with these two worldviews, these two identities. God is saying, I am with you. This gets even more fascinating. In John chapter 1, you'll remember the text, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It goes on and on about the Word, and then it says in verse 9... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. When John uses the word dwelt among us, that Jesus dwelt among us, he uses a very particular word. It's a Greek word, and it's the Greek word used for tabernacle in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. What the text really says is that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. That's what John is saying. That Jesus came and did this for us. He came and became flesh. That God accommodated himself in such a way that we could see him and understand him and know that he is with us through Jesus. Jesus is our Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews 9 says it this way, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, none of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The author of Hebrews says... Jesus is the perfect tabernacle. He's the perfect representation of God in our midst, leading us and being among us. Nobody knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It's lost. Indiana Jones didn't find it. It's been lost for years. In fact, after the temple was built, after Solomon built the temple, we hear almost nothing else about it. So at least, probably a thousand years before Jesus, this thing is lost. We we don't know. There's all kinds of rumors about the Knights Templar capturing it and taking it to France and Italy and all kinds of things. And we just don't know. Later, the temple is destroyed because God's representation is among us. It's in his people now. It's in his church now. And so we tell stories. And so we continue to follow the cult, the faith practices that have been handed down to us, and we speak out to a world full of broken spirits, and we say, come. And so in this next month, we're going to be telling a lot of this church's story. We're going to be taking up a collection to continue to keep this tabernacle. But this is not just about celebrating 50 years on Oak Hill. We are more than a historical landmark. This is about more than updating our building. We are much more than our property. This is about our purpose being a tabernacle on Oak Hill. God is present here. May we meet him, follow him, and continue to be a testimony in this town and in this world. Let us pray. Jesus, you are better than a tabernacle. You give us full access to God. You tabernacle with us. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant because your spirit is with us. Lord, let us live accordingly, now and forever. Amen.